You're listening to the Relationship-Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. Welcome back to the show, everyone. On today's episode, I sit down and interview Michael Poe. He is the director of special programs in White Settlement School District outside of Fort Worth, Texas. Now, we call him Pogue because he used to be a coach. And I said, what do you want to go by? And he's like, just call me Pogue. So Pogue and I sit down and have a very powerful conversation about the culture and the climate in White Settlement, how it got there, how his superintendent is an impactful component of his just real authenticity of himself allows him to be just like have general great relationships with the staff members in the school district. We also talk about the way he shapes his teachers in education and how we believe education can continue to be reshaped even after all these years. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Center Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. I am delighted today to have Michael Pogue on the show. Welcome to the show, Mike. Michael Pogue. Sorry, we just talked about this. What are we going to do? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So so we'll just call you, as you said, we both have coaching backgrounds. I'll just call you Pogue because I think you're most comfortable with that. Hope none of our listeners get disrespected by that. That's just our comfort when we get called by our last name for some lunch. Yes, sir. But Pogue, before we jump into anything, we always like to talk about connections before content. So we're going to do that in a GTKY flip five format. So I'm going to ask you five GTKY questions, and you're more than welcome to answer mine and vice versa. And I'm a question connoisseur, so I'm interested to see what kind of questions you got for us today. Sure. But my question is really simple to start off with. How do you like your eggs, Pogue? How do I like my eggs? If I could have them my way, I like them sunny side up on top of some rice with a little bacon. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's so funny. I don't know if I have done the rice, but man, like if, if it was hash browns or just runny eggs. It's, oh, my God. The runnier, the better. My dad grew up in Louisiana. And so that's how we always had them. We have to have fried eggs over rice, sunny side up with a lot of goo on them. Man, I'm going to have to try the rice part. Okay. It's okay. You got me right there already thinking about breakfast this morning. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Question number two, when you have some free time, Pogue, and just understand free time I know is 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 very vague, but when you have some free time, what's your favorite thing to do? I'll tell you what, this is kind of my bit that I tell my staff. Every Saturday morning, I try to play golf with my dad. We uh, tee off about seven o'clock in the morning, and I tell my staff, this is the only time that my phone is off for work stuff, is uh, my dad's about 80 years old now, and so I try to enjoy at least once a week playing golf with him, and that is Probably my favorite thing to do with my time off is to play golf. Oh, my God, Pogue. How did I know I'd like you so much in the first two I questions? Uh, talk about sports. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so open-ended. You don't know. And this is what I love about questions. It's so open-ended. I really didn't go sports. You just took it there. But one of the few passions I have in life, and I'm just recovering from a hip replacement and a shoulder mm-hmm. surgery, so I haven't swung a club in a while, but it is definitely a passion. And just and just to let you know, as a side note, the fact that you get to play with your dad every Saturday morning at, at his age, both of my parents have passed. Oh. And so, no, no, no. So so at the end, I, I just I love that that 
that vision and that story. I have a few friends in life I've seen on Facebook and things that play with their dad like that and things. And so to me, to have that partner, you know, your, 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 your ride or die in the golf cart with you every yep. Saturday morning, man. Uh, and for you to turn your phone off, there's, that just says a lot about you just by that quick answer right there. Well, and I don't, you know, you said your parents have passed and I tell my friends all the time, like, I don't know how much longer my dad's going to physically be able to play golf, but I want to get every ounce of golf with him that I can, regardless of how good we are or how good we're not. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with the, with the sentiment behind the message and you're playing golf. I mean, so it's, it's a win, 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 all those things. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. So question number three, if you had to pick a favorite color, what would be your favorite color? That's very easy. I bleed purple. Uh, I went to TCU. My daughter goes to Abilene Christian University. I met my wife at TCU. Heck, even my middle school was purple. Other than the fact that I work at a district that's totally blue, purple is without a shadow of a doubt the color that I live. That That's so interesting how, how it was shaped into your life. And that ironically, schools, purple, come into play. Oh, yeah. Well, based on the background of mine, it's blue. I went to a high school. Yeah, no, but I went to a high school. They had a blue mascot, Mustangs. We were blue and white. So blue and silver. And so, yeah, blue just seems to be my uh, just favorite color. So I'll tell you, uh, my current district, we bleed blue. And uh, I have a whole uh, half of my closet. It's nothing but blue with bare paws on it. And I love it. There's nothing wrong with that either. (laughs) No, but I love it. Half of your closet's either blue or purple. There's some truth to that. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Another simple question. If you have a favorite number, what is it? And is there any association with that number? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. That's a hard one. I would have to say probably um, 21. Okay. uh, And for a couple of reasons, um, as I've gotten older, blackjack is kind of my thing. So there's that, there's the selfish thing, but, but growing up, I was a huge fan of Roger Clemens. He was number 21. I wanted to play baseball for the University of Texas. And in high school, that's the number that I wore when I played baseball. And so that is kind of a very personal number to me. I even had a, I'm not a big fan of posters, but I had a poster of Roger Clemens pitching for Boston and he wore number 21. And so that was kind of who I wanted to be like. And I was never anywhere close to him, but 21 (laughs) was kind of where in my mind where I believed I needed to be growing up. That was a long time ago. Well, a long time ago, it's interesting because our paths are paralleling, but mine was number 12. Okay. Why was 12 for your number? One, it's my birth date. Okay. Two, Roger Staubach. Yes. Dallas Cowboys. Blue. It just seemed to be like, I don't know, between my birthday, the sports memories of number 12 Mm -hmm. being in so many different places, but Roger Staubach was the first 12. I think that resonated with me. And then, so when I got into high school and I got to pick my number 12, you know, it was just one of those simple, so much like Roger Clemens, you know, that's who Roger Staubach was for me. And then I started noticing just other athletes in life, you know, who picked 12. And so, you know, and then when I got into a second master's in Christian ministry, 12 disciples, there's a lot of just 12 Mm -hmm. that just started to like, like come to the surface for me. And so, yeah, 12 just ended up being my number. So much like yours, it started out in a very uh, sports way. Uh, sure. and, and much like you, I would have loved to have played baseball or, or football or some type of sports at some type of level to at that competition level. But I just realized like I was really good in high school. And then you go to college and you're like, oh my God, like 
there's a lot of good athletes. And I went yeah. to East Texas State right off the bat. So in East oh, Texas, wow. oh my God, there's a lot of really great athletes. And so what was it? Texas A&M Commerce, East Texas mm-hmm. State back then. Man, you just you, you go up there and think, okay, I'm pretty good. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm pretty average. Because <laughs> there, there are a lot of great athletes. I mean, well, you the get fact this- that you played in college, you're much better than average. I was a really good baseball player, but I realized day one of college that my days ended in high school and there were at least a million people better than I thought I was. <laughs> and just at, at 48 now, I just admit the fact that I was high school good. And, and yeah, I respect the people who actually can move past that and go to college or at the pros. Absolutely. All right. So so there's some good questions to get us started. What do you got for me, Pogue? All right. So I wrote down some questions for you. So you might see me look down and ask these. So you I'm going to go backwards. So whenever you get a chance to go on a date, where's your favorite place to go on a date? Oh, great question. I live near San Antonio, so it's hard to not say the Riverwalk. The Riverwalk Riverwalk is just, I mean, it's romantic in its lifestyle already for San Antonio. Sure. And I just think, particularly if you catch this around like Christmas time when the lights are on and it's just lit up and it's just has this... It does has a very romantic feel about it. So I would say somewhere on the Riverwalk here in San Antonio. All right. I like that. Very good. I like San Antonio also. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to go to your sports. The first thing I wrote down was where did you play college football? Did you play college football and what was your position? East Texas State. I, you know, you gave me way too much credit. I got to I played one year and I say I got to be on the field. I didn't get a chance to play and do all those things. I got to practice and do everything that a college football player would do for one year. And then, to be honest with you, I came back home after one year. The writing was on the wall for me, and people can say what they want. I just told myself, I was like, maybe I don't. And I will look back. I don't think I had the drive at that age and the way athletes do now with sports camps and clinics and personal coaches. I didn't have any of that. I didn't have anybody in my corner. It was me. And I was probably six and a half hours away from home. It was a long way. First way, you know, first real long part away. And I just think a lot of those experiences, but the biggest reality was, and I truly mean this, Pogue, I, the athletes were phenomenal. And I saw myself just being out-athleted, if that's <clears> even <throat> a word, right? It just, just on the field on a regular basis. And it just, it was, it was very humbling. So I chose baseball and football were like two passions and one's in the fall, one's in the spring. Mm-hmm. So I came back and I said, well, then how, I'll, let's see what I can do in baseball. And I tried out for a couple of baseball but then I started coaching at a youth really early. Like when I was in college, I started coaching youth, wow. like little league. But then I started coaching select and then upper legs. And before I knew it, then I created my own baseball team and a select team here for adults in San Antonio. Wow. And so I found my passion in like coaching, playing, being a coach and a player simultaneously on my own team. And that really kind of filled my bucket. And then before I knew it, I was like, okay, I really want to get into coaching like for a career. And that's what kind of launched me. So, yeah, that's just kind of my story in a nutshell. I like that. So um, I know you've been in school. I, of course, I researched you. I've known I've known your name for some time. So was there a moment in your life where you knew school was going to be your thing? I tell people, I, I think at an early elementary age, there was a teacher named Miss Bagby. Miss Bagby allowed me to, if I finished my work efficiently and effectively ahead of time, I could go work with some of the younger students. And I'm thinking if I remember right, it may have been like second grade or first grade and I could go help them. So whether I helped them read or write or did some things. And I remember coming back and asking her, is this what it feels like to be a teacher? And she said, yeah, to help others, you know, be successful. And I, 
And I, I would say that was kind of the bug. The seed was planted, but it really wasn't until I graduated from high school and Coach Terry Hall was, you know, I've had many impactful people. I don't know. And he till I'll still call him every once in a while. He's still here. And I'll be like, Coach, you just know you made the biggest impact. He's like, I don't even know what I did. But he doesn't have to know what he did. He did a lot for me. He was a father figure. He was a disciplinarian. He was a, he was just a shaper. But I think I looked at him and said, I want to be him. I want to be like him. I want to make that impact with him. And so it just really like told myself, I was like, okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go into education and I want to do this. But I, I I didn't know. I thought I wanted to be an English major until I got into British literature, and then I was like, <laughs> okay, I don't want to be an English major. So I went the easiest route, no puns intended. I just went kinesiology and said, okay. But I think what I failed at is you you graduate from college, Pogue, with kines, and then you're like, now go get a job. Well, who's going to hire? How many PE kines jobs are out there right out the gate? There's there's not. And so I had to quickly drive 65 miles to go get a job the first time because that was the only PE job I could find. So I tell people all the time, if you're getting into education, not that PE is not a true teaching field. But make sure, particularly if you're going into coaching, have a plan, be marketable, you know, have some teaching fields to go along with that. Because once I got into coaching, I realized having more teaching fields made me more marketable, hire, hireable. I'm using some really great words today. Good words. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyways, it's still early. But yeah, that's just, sorry, that's just kind of my long-winded answer. No problem. All right. So is there one particular job that was harder to leave than any other job? Leave? Yeah. Like, was there a job when... Maybe you moved up or you had some opportunities that you're like, I really love this job and it was di more difficult to leave than any others. Yeah, I would say most of them were hard to leave. Okay. I will say Ed White was hard to leave because it was getting out of education. It was leaving the home I had had for five years. It was leaving a group of kids that I looped up with for three years. But what's crazy is that's not the biggest regret of my life. The biggest job I regret I have is I was, um, I had been coaching one year at Yorktown. I got offered a head baseball coach at Tidehaven and I went and took this job and I just clicked the kids and I clicked. We were successful. We went three rounds deep. We lost to eventually Weimar who had won the state championship that year in the third round at Brenham. I, I left and I, I just kicked myself all the time. It, it was a, it's a, I love the small school. I, I missed the people I had um, built relationships the kids love me. I love them. I think it shocked them in the community when I left. And if I'm really, really vulnerable right now, um, Poke, I think what I recognize is I was um, very self-centered and I was a one, I'm a one T. And if an, another T, if another school recruited me, I would easily go to that job because it just felt great to be wanted. And I wasn't mature enough in my coaching self and my career to go, oh no, you could stay here and really have a longevity and career. You can build a little baseball dynasty. You can make a huge difference in kids' lives in a small school. And I just failed to see that. But then when I look back at it, that's probably the one job that I'm like, and not because we would have been successful in baseball at the time. The fact that I think I could have helped them just be successful in life. And to this day, it's crazy. I only taught there one year and coached there one year. And I've had kids who've told me, best coach, best teacher ever. I mean, it was this, I don't know. It was one of the special jobs that when you look back at it, I didn't see it in the moment, but I certainly see it today. I can understand that. All right. And then last question, do you prefer lottery tickets or lottery scratch-offs? I don't do either one. Okay. No. All right. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't play either one. I, I think I did. If I, I think I did tickets for a while. Okay. I've 
rarely done scratch offs, but I see in the stores all the time. People are like, give me a 22, give me a 38. <laughs> and at first I have to kind of look like, what the hell are they calling? Is like bingo in here? What's going oh, yes. on? Then, My kids, I give them scratch offs. Part Not that's not their birthday present, but as <laughs> part of their birthday gift, I give them scratch offs. And you would think that's the greatest gift of all time, even though what you want about one out of every 12. And so it's, I'm just curious what you're trying something easy there for you. No, 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 no. Thank you. And you know, what's crazy about those questions. We always say, you know, it's, it's interesting because I will tell you as our listeners listen to our, our, our discussion, I, I loved how I love questions. First of all, great questions. Um, very, very thought provoking and, and very, yet simple. I'm a question connoisseur in, and much like what we teach, we always say start shallow, you know, start simple. That's favorite colors, how you like your eggs, those types right. of things. Because to me, you know, when you're building a relationship with someone for the first time, I mean, we don't want to go, you know, what, you know, what's the sentimental value of bubble? You know, you're like, whoa, a little too fast, too deep. And so, yeah, when you, so when you said, I'm going to go backwards, I was interested to see what was backwards, you know, when you, in, you, but here's what's interesting. We always say start shallow in shallow. So in other words, start simple in simple. If you're going to build any type of depth to your question and even potential depth to your question, Try to do it in the middle. That's just a coaching point for me is start simple, in simple. And then if you're going to build any kind of depth in conversation, particularly get to know you, you know, build. It's almost like you're walking out into a pool. We always use the pool as the analogy. Yeah. So start in the shallow, go a little, you know, even if you don't go deep, go a little steps out, but then start and end in the shallow. That way nobody ever feels like when you get done with the conversation, they feel uplifted and like, oh, that was easy. Versus if you end on a tough question, they're like, Dang, Pogue, you kind of beat me up this morning with those questions. So, <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Just a little coaching point. Well, hey, like our, our listeners, that was the GTKY part of the show. So get to know you. Connections before content. If you wanted to know more about our connections, more about our virtual conference coming up July 13th and 14th, and any other way to be involved with us, head over to rclfirst.com. All right. So we got that out of the way, Pogue. So let's give every all of our listeners an update. Where are you currently at and what is your current role in education? Yes, sir. I'm currently a director for special programs. I am supporting all the staff that relates to special education, students with 504 and dyslexia. I'm in White Settlement ISD, which is really close to the base north of uh, downtown Fort Worth. This has been my fifth year and uh, I'm in a great place. Uh, I tell you what my favorite thing about this district is. Uh, I see my superintendent once a week, which is something that didn't happen in the past. And he believes one thing that all kids have the potential to be great. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, so it's interesting because I always tell people I, 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 I went on the superintendency, excuse me, path, but obviously never even made it to central office. I left as an assistant principal. So principal, assistant principal was the highest, I guess, administrative level positions I've been in. But when you, Let's start there at the top, because I think it's interesting sometimes, Pogue, that some superintendents to me, like I met one in Dickinson and the superintendent Dickinson. Oh, my God, Carla. She allows me to call her Carla. Um, Carla, when we met her, she was for me and I hope none of our listeners take this wrong. The atypical. She she was very friendly, very inviting, very not very standoffish, you know, didn't have that cloud around her that, you know, you can't get near me. It was just really, really good, good to meet her. And so as we built relationships in the district, what I started noticing is that I I said, who's going to be leading this charge? And she was like, well, I am. And I said, oh, my gosh, I have yet to have a superintendent that leads a relational approach in a district because usually you hand it off to a senior cabinet, assistant mm-hmm. superintendent, 
director or something and it becomes their baby. But I will tell you that I really saw a huge difference in the way that the entire district, because we trained the district, how the staff received our tools and message once she got her message in front of ours. So when you hear that, knowing that you meet with your superintendent on a weekly, just what are your thoughts when you hear that kind of stuff about superintendents just being aloof or, you know, not, you know, impacted, impacted sure. all the way down? What are your, what's your thoughts on that? So I've, I've actually had both and I've had both pretty recently. And when I uh, first came into a, uh, into white settlement and interviewed and had the job for five years, Mr. Molinar, I don't call him Frank until we're in a conversation, but Mr. Molinar, he knows everyone in the community. He knows almost every student by name, and he walks into to every school almost every day. He is a just a he's a he's one of those. He gets in with us. He gets dirty with us. He has high expectations, but he's not one of those that you don't ever see except the beginning of the year and the end of the year. If it uh, even though I meet with him weekly, I use he'll stop by the building to visit some of our kids just to say hi to see how the staff is doing. He leads by example. He's a big believer in you've got to do what you say. And he believes that all kids are important. And so he is out of his office, even with school board members in the uh, at the campuses, helping teachers, helping kids, just letting everybody know what the message of the district is. And he's probably the first one I've ever seen do that, because in the past I've had superintendents where you have to schedule a meeting to go see them. And it's kind of nerve wracking at best. But with Mr. Molinar, he's disarming. Even though his expectations are maybe higher than any other superintendent I've ever worked for, he's so disarming and wants you to be successful. So that's interesting because I always say, and I always have this phrase called power and permission. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is, is a lot of campus leaders and a lot of people in leadership believe that the people underneath them, and I say that with all the respect, the people that they're leading are, it's inferred that they have permission to build relationships. They have permission to put kids first. That you know all of those things. And I I thought the same thing until I got into this role. And the reason I say that is is because now when I get into this role, Hogue, I've seen some staff go, okay, we spent an entire one day, two day, whatever it is with you, right? And they're so apprehensive about going to actually do these relationship skill sets with kids in the classroom because they're like so are we really like allowed to do this? And I'm like, didn't your principal just pay a buttload of money and bring us in and like put, you know, and, you know, and so I, I, I just started one subtle thing I started doing is at the end of the, at the training, what I would have them poke is that poke is, is I would say, Hey, can you have, can you just stand up and just give them permission? And, and it, they, it, some principals at first kind of go, Oh yeah. But some people are like, okay. And I'm like, trust me. Because what's going to happen is, is not only, and I'm going to bring this up because I'm circling back to what your superintendent sure. does. Not only will you say it, but then I need you to go follow through with it. So that means if you go into a classroom, because you know what happens, Pogue is, is you know, a superintendent or administrator walks in and they're doing something that's non-content related. Those teachers get the deer in the headlight look, right? Like, oh my God, I'm busted. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting though, is if you'll come in, and just participate in whatever they're doing and just be a part of it, then you'll start to see that anxiety go down. Right. So, so when you just talked about your superintendent, like not only uh, preaching it, but living it, like not, not just saying it's not just lip service. He actually like comes in and actually does what he says he's going to do. So when I describe power and permission from leadership, does that, does that resonate with you at all? Oh, it totally does. Because um, you think about that in terms of leadership style, 
I have a lot of administrative friends who, you know, we all have the title, but they don't ever use the title. They give their staff permission to be them because everybody's their own unique person. And when folks give you permission to just be you, because with all due respect, if, if somebody hires me or I hire someone, I know they're supposed to be good at that job. And I have to just let them be them and only help them when they, you know, provide the support and help they need. But just let them do their job and be great at what they do. It's not my job to come and be the power man because that's so tiring. It's my job to let them be successful because when when the team is successful, that's the best part. I, I don't need accolades. I just love it when my team's successful and when my kids are successful. You make it sound so simple because it really is, though. I, I mean, because you're like, I just hired them to be the we. We obviously hired you. Mm-hmm. We obviously checked your references. We feel like you're certified. I mean, we know you're certified. We feel like you are qualified. That was my word. You're qualified to teach the subject and, 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 and guide the students where you're at. We just want you to be you. And what's interesting is some teachers, depending on where their experiences are at or whether they're new or whatever, they're just, they're just so afraid to be themselves mm-hmm. because I have reflected after 20 plus years in education, I just, I don't know where along the journey, Pogue, that we actually tell them how to, like, how to be you and it's okay to be you. You know, I I feel like the production of educators out of the system is designed so heavily for content and designed so heavily for student academic success. Yes. That in the formula, as we are preparing teachers, that we, I'll use the word, we fail. We fail to inject them with a with a enough of the formula to say, if you don't build a relationship with those kids, um, it's going to be really, really difficult to one, manage them and two, to academically help them grow. Sure. I mean, doesn't that sound so simple? But yeah, it does. Um, and what's interesting is it makes sense because a lot of what we do today is, you know, social emotional learning is now a, a big key phrase. But, you know. To be quite honest with you, relationships have been around since long before there was more than a one school house. And there's no there's no magic to social emotional learning. You've got to learn how to connect with kids. And whether it's through technology or whether it's holding their hand or sitting in the floor playing with them, it's it's that relationship that actually allows a kid to show what they know and more more, um, I guess, in terms of reflecting and really what they need help with. Uh, You know, a lot of times if you can't connect, you can't help a kid because there's a lot of, you know, I I was thinking about our what I was kind of saying. And back in the day when we were kids, we didn't have information at our fingertips. We needed a teacher to lead us. You know what I mean? Today, I've got in my office, I've got three computers up and running right now just because that's how I live. And information's at our our fingertips. We need a partner in education. I need a a friend, a partner, a connected person so that we can learn these things together. And it's fascinating to me that relationships are, quote, now a big deal and forever. The only reason why I love education is because I had teachers that connected with me. I was never the great, the easiest kid to work with. But you know what? I found connections and that's what worked for our kids and worked for me. Wow. I knew I knew I liked you, Pogue, just from the eggs <laughs> question and the, the eggs. <laughs> no, but there's there's so much there because what I've made as a message throughout this this platform of the work that I do, even the podcast, is a couple of things. Just to re- circle back to what you said, I you know I I am so glad that we were able to identify something like social emotional learning because it was such a a huge missing piece 
that was not necessarily being addressed by a title or a frame around it, right? But as you've pointed out, I'm like, okay, I, my phrase is build your school on a rock of relationships instead of the sands of initiatives. Because what happens is I really saw this heavily evident coming back in the mid pandemic when, you know, obviously we have to learn online learning and all that stuff. But but because of the social tensions and because of the gap of instruction and because we hadn't been with kids and because of trauma and all these different things that the students, I saw a lot of schools reaching out to social emotional learning, trauma informed practices, right? Culture, diversity, uh, implicit bias, all these things. And I'm like, wow, y'all are doing some heavy lifting and you don't even know your kids. And so that's why I was trying to say, as you pointed out, I'm like, Pogue, like relationships have been the platform and and the the plate or the rock or whatever you want to refer to it as forever. And I'm like, so how do I talk about, a, you know, because social emotional learning is is powerful, but it's lesson based. And for me, you're going to get an, a, a CL book or a second step or something, right? And I'm not putting down any of them. They're all positive, impactful pieces. What I'm saying is, how do I take that positive, impactful piece that talks about community or empathy, right? Or, or right, um, something self-reflection. And then when you're doing that, but how do I get you to, to communicate and reflect in that if we don't even know each other? So I'm with you on the fact that like SEO is great, but it's lesson-based and lesson-based blends relationships. They don't build relationships, right? And, and then to add what you were just also talking about it, it it's, it's like, if we can get this as a foundation, but we've, we're taught, and we had a high school student speak at a conference that we had in, in Irving, and she stood up in front of a thousand people. And I thought it was really simple, but profound, illustrates what you just said. She said, with today's technology, which you just keep that in mind, why should I content with you if you don't connect with me? Because at the end of the day, I can go up and look up every piece of information you're going to teach me on that on any of these devices. And it, I think it's, I've never heard it framed this way, Pogue, but what oh, you said was, we need a partner. But see, in educators, we're not taught, I'm not your partner, I'm your teacher. And I'm here to deliver content and information that you don't know. And right. it's like, I, I think we have to, I think my one of my favorite phrases, some of us are using a 1999 playbook in 2021. <laughs> so truth of that, truth of that. Yes, you're right. You're right. And you know, um, we're so in, I'm in the business too. So I'm held accountable like every other person in education. We're, we're held accountable to that, to that test and, and the accountability ratings. And somewhere along the way, that became the priority versus the real priority is, is, and I'll just go with what our priority is here at White Settlement. All kids, you know, all kids are our top priority. And if, if the focus is the kids, I still believe to this day that if you can get a good relationship with the kid, the learning will take care of itself. I mean, humans are meant to learn and get better and grow. It's can you find that right connection, that right partner to actually grow with? So, so thinking about that, what is an example of a strategy that you have used to make connections with students? So um, the first thing I always do is, and so, you know, I'm in special education. So I have kids who naturally have learning problems just to start with when they come to school. Uh, whenever I connect with kids, I try not to introduce anything about their learning until we sit down and just have a conversation. And like you and I are doing a face-to-face -face conversation where I get to know a little bit about them. And find out what they really like, because if I know what they like, I might actually be able to teach them through what they like. And there are a lot of kids who 
they don't have the same likes I have, but I better go research what they like if I'm going to try to connect something with that. Um, I have kids who, um, you know, the, the whole, I'm going to go with graphic novels. I have kids who love graphic novels and I was not, I did not grow up on graphic novels. I grew up on the giant, thick 300 page books that I would read some and some of them I wouldn't read. And so my daughter was one of them. And so once you got a graphic novel in front of some kids and you learned about it, you could start that conversation. And I think once my, my real strategy is I need to know what drives you. And then once I know what drives you, I can connect any content, any expectation through what you like, because at that point, then the learning's about you. The learning's not about me. So have you ever ran into that situation where you have an adult who's in the teaching field who is not seeing what you're describing? They're not seeing either the value in it or they're not understanding the concept or, or what you're talking about, you know? So when I hear you describe that, it's exactly why I start every show the way I do, Pogue, because some people I know and some people I'm meeting for the first time like yourself, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's our, our favorite hashtag, connect before content. I mean, it, it it is the basis of what we're preaching and teaching. And what you just described is just the exact same formula, right? I've got to get to know them before I can really start to unfold them. And, and so those types of things. So have you ever run into an adult mindset where they struggle to see that that is like the formula that should be in place or sure. does that make sense? Yeah. And I have, and I won't kind of say anyone's name, but no, please I, don't. I do, yeah. I just, I would never, I would never do anything like that. Yeah. And whether it's where I'm currently at or previously at, I'll say what I've met a couple of people who I really enjoy having conversations with. They're great people. They're very engaging. And then when I see them in the classroom, I don't see that human, if that makes sense. Like when, when we're having a conversation and I don't have the, I talk about the name badge and I don't have my name badge on and we're just connecting and having communications and just conversations. I'm like, man, you're an exciting person to talk to and, and listen and learn from. And then when I see you in the classroom, I'm like, I don't really know you, if that makes sense. And so I find that I don't know if it's just walking into the room or walking into the expectations that they have a different personality. But I, I've worked with several folks who I love to engage in and I love to have a conversation with. Heck, I'd love to go have a beer with if I could. But then when I walk in the room, I'm like, I don't think I know you very well, if that, make, if that makes sense. And I don't know if it's the setup, the expectations or the room. I think it's a culmination of a, the variety of things that you just kind of put in. And one, um, there was a gentleman named Joe Beckman, and I always refer to it whenever I can because this is this is so powerful. But teachers are taught to try to be extraordinary educators, right? Yes. But but they're so busy being extraordinary, they forget to be ordinary. And it's when they're ordinary when they make their mo their greatest moments of genuine connection. Agree. So what's interesting is, and so what sets that on a pattern or what sets that up, you know, on that path for me is, as we've talked about, there's not power and permission from a lot of school leaders that that is an expectation that they should connect before content, that if, if we truly understand James Comer's quote, right, no significant learning occurs without a significant relationship, nice. then I, as a school leader, I'm going to say, well, we're not going to get significant scores unless we get significant learning. Well, in order to get significant learning, we're going to need significant relationships. So I'm going to need you to focus on here's permission, all these things, and then let the accountability as far as scores take its route. 
take it, take it where it goes, right? As long as we have high engaging lessons and we're teaching, you know, on our teaks and we're going on our pacing calendars and we're doing the things that we need to do. At the end of the day, we can't force those scores to be in a certain section, you know, and I think sometimes we're very guilty of like, you know, wanting the data to go in this direction versus just trusting the process. Right. And the reason I say that is, is early when I first started doing this work, probably when our past first crossed at a service center, I'll, I'll take you back to Nick Saban for a second. I watched this, I think it was CBS or something, and Nick Saban had won his umpteenth, and this was still years ago, so he had won before he won his whatever, sixth or eighth or ninth, <laughs> or whatever national championship he's won. But they were doing an interview, and, I, and I, I, I literally took my phone at this point and recorded like just the TV version of it. But what, what Nick Saban said was, we don't focus on national championships. We don't even discuss them. They're not our topic. They're not our outcome. We don't focus like it is. We don't talk about winning a national championship. What we focus on is the process that we get better every single day and that we do our job our, to our best of ability and that we're prepared. And and he just kept saying and he kept talking about the process. And the, and the gentleman who was interviewing said, you know, it's so interesting that you, you, you have won more national championships or, you know, at that time, nowhere near Bear Bryant. But you know, he had won so many national championships have been successful. And he was like, yeah, but you don't focus on it. And he, and that's when he said, it's, it's not the focus on the outcome. It's the focus on the process that mm -hmm. gets you to that outcome. And I think that's where education gets stuck somewhere along the line. Somebody led our pipeline to think we need to think about the outcomes and not focus. And, and then, but not focus on the process, only focus on the outcome. So then when that teacher walks in the room, they're like stressed. They're like focused on an outcome. They're like, got to cover this content because accountability is about my scores. And think about this, uh, Pogue, there is no relationship report. There's no accountability for connections. Right. So it's not part of my, it may be informally part of my job performance, but at the end of the day, my job is related back to academic scores and success. So when you hear that, I mean, does that kind of encompass what you feel like some of the teachers are, are up against? Oh, I totally, totally agree with that. It's fascinating that we all agree relationships and social emotional learning are a priority, but the only printout that I get, because I get several accountability printouts, you don't see anything about uh, Mr. Curtis has 19 out of 21 great relationships or whatever that is, you know what I mean? That sort of thing. It's only three of his kids didn't make enough progress or high enough score. And that's what we're so focused on that, that we forget. I mean, no offense, there are eight-year-olds taking tests that have people's jobs on the line. And I think that's a very sad situation at times. I don't know how we got here and that's not my job, but my job is to say, let's look at where we're at. Let's stop, evaluate, look around, and let's not just say relationships are important or connections are important or, hey, we should connect before we cut. Let's not just say it. Let, like, let's put our, our words into actions. And so when you think about special ed, thinking about actions, what are some of the, do you feel like dealing with that special needs population, that connections sometimes even play more of a pivotal role in with those students being successful? Now, notice my word successful. I'm not even talking about academics because I'm just talking about successful because for some people that may not be in your world and as, as a leader and raising two children, they're high functioning autistic as a parent. So understanding success doesn't necessarily mean A's on a report card and, 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 you know, scores on an SAT or ACT or, right. or a status accountability test. I'm talking about just success. So do you believe, and, and can you describe how sometimes relationships 
will play more of a pivotal role in helping those special needs students be successful than just the average student? Sure. Um, I'll tell you what, um, the most one of the so one of my lifelines when I got into a leadership role of special ed was I'm going to call it a lifestyle, the inclusive lifestyle uh, for a hundred years, for, uh, for a lot of years. Students with disabilities didn't really get to connect with the general ed teachers. They were pulled out in these cute specialized units. And historically, they fell further and further behind. So I've tried to introduce this idea that all of our kids need to have the same access that everyone else does. I know that's a state thing, but I've really tried to push that. And I've seen kids who, to be quite honest, can't read well enough to be in a fifth grade class. But I've watched them light up and smile because they're with their friends and they're learning. And to me, that is the best thing you can ever have. And most of that is less related to the kid and more related to that adult that's in the classroom with them. I have some teachers that it doesn't matter if they've got kids who can't read, just they'll say, give them to me. I'll take care of them and they'll make the best, you know, they'll make the best progress that they can. And I think that's what I consider a success when I have a kid who is learning and learning next to his peers, not learning in a room, in a room where they're not going to close the gap. And so that's one of the things. And I have several handfuls of teachers on all my campuses who I have to be careful because I don't want to burn them out because they're like, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me kids. And it doesn't matter how high or low functioning they are. They find a way to make that kid have a successful year. And you're right. They, they may not pass the star test. In fact, I've got kids who graduated that have passed maybe one star test in eight years, but they're good citizens. They smile and they know how to be a member of a class. And to me, that's very successful. And, and it's really fun to watch that because I, um, I get in trouble for this all the time. Uh, I, tell, I, tell, I tell a lot of staff that I have in special ed, you know, you've got to have a learning problem to start with to get in special education, right? That is just a fact of life. And that learning problem probably means you probably don't read too well or you struggle with relationships. And those two things are very difficult in an accountability area that we're in right now. And I tell them all the time, if you can just show progress and success in a classroom, that's an A to me. And, and, and the more kids we have doing that, I think the better off they're going to be once they leave us. Because I've got, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old and there are kids in school right now that are going to take care of me when I'm 75 and 80 years old. And I need kids to be successful, not, not be successful. Absolutely. You won't have anybody to play golf with. No, oh, and I need, I'll need people because <laughs> my girls don't like golf. And so I'll need somebody to play golf with. <laughs> so, so it's interesting because you said reading and relationships. I've never heard it really like phrase those two together. I think that's really interesting. Um, when you look at reading and relationships is, is two categories of a deficit that can get you, you know, placed, you know, and identified. And it was interesting because early in my career, and I don't know if I'm sure you may have heard this, Pogue, because earlier in my career in education, as you said, I'm all about differentiation and I'm all about inclusion. And it's just so interesting how inclusion has changed over the last 20 years. Because I, I remember the special ed unit or the behavior unit or, you know, where those kids would go. And I remember early conversations in my career where teachers would just, oh, this is truthful. They would just say, if they could just get those kids, you know, get that paperwork filled out and get them identified, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the first principals that I worked with, she had said something that I thought was simple, but yet profound. She had said, you know, because I kept bantering just like the teachers we need to get those kids you know labeled and identified and and she said oh, yeah. 
She goes, and then what? She goes, there is no special ed island. They don't go to a different island, right? They go and they get identified and then they come back to your classroom and now they have a identification, a label, right? Now they have something as a deficit the labeled in, like you said, whether it's reading or whether it's math computation or whatever it is, right? And mm-hmm. now they're back in your classroom. You still have to, still have to quote unquote deal with them. Mm-hmm. And they, it was like they thought like if I could just get them identified, they would go away. I right. mean, it sounds horrible, but that's just the truth of the situation because – some teachers, those students were too much to handle. You ever sure. come across that 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 archaic mindset? I do. And to be quite honest, I think the state has actually reinforced some teachers that way because 10 years ago, maybe now 15 at this point, students with IPs at some level didn't even have to take the test. And so right. if you identified them, guess what? Michael Pogue doesn't have to take the test. He's good to go. And so for the better part of a decade, we were reinforced to that. If you have a label, then guess what? You're not accountable to learning, I'll say. I'm not going to say the test. I'll say learning. Yes. And so for years, there are there are teachers our age that remember the day that we were told all students have to take the regular STAR test. And no offense to my teachers, this is the state doing this to us. It was traumatic. That's why I just, uh, yes. and they're like, what? That's exactly all right. And kids. Yes. You're, you're, and you're telling, telling me that a little Johnny and little Susie yep. who used to be exempt now yes. have to take the test and I'm responsible for Correct. helping them take the mm-hmm. test. And then my name is on that report yes. for that kid. And now my principal is going to hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going you to because you can see how the tunnel just like they just got. Really I know. And the sad thing was, was we had at that time, it's been, I mean, those kids are probably 25 or 30 now, right. but we had eighth graders, ninth graders and 10th graders who never saw a test. And then all of a sudden one year, hey, here's a non-grade level star test. Sorry, you don't know how to read because you were never required to be accountable for tests, but here you go. Yeah. And, and it just was, it, 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 it negative, it reinforced the teachers the wrong way because that right. was the, that was the system. I mean, I had great teachers back then that loved the kids, but it was really nice when they didn't have to take the test. Now, all of a sudden, I'm adding this extra pressure of I've got a kid with a reading deficit, a relationship deficit. Right. And yet you're going to tell me he's got to take the same test that the other kids who statewide struggle to pass the test anyway have to take as well. And I think the they're trying to correct that system, but it's like it's going to take it's going to take people like me retiring from the system to to really kind of really see how that's going to fix things, because I do feel like there are teachers through the state at some level set up to feel this way about students with disabilities. I don't think the people did. I think the system set this up. No, I totally agree with you. And I don't I don't. That's why I always say you can't put this on one person. This is the 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 ecosystem of education, the this, this system in itself. And it, somebody described education as like the largest boat with the smallest rudder. It takes so long. Does that make sense? It's a great analogy, oh, yes. right? Oh, yes. But it's like it takes so long to turn. And that's why Denise and I were on the other day with a 19-year-old. And he was like, you know, what is your lifelong thoughts about this? And I said, I just want to leave a ripple effect. You know, I'm 51 and I just want to be able to be like, okay, you know, when I'm 80 and playing golf with somebody, please let me do that. If I get that, I just want to look back and say, hey, you know, 30 plus years ago, we 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 started to turn the rudder 
and we're starting to see the boat start to finally, you know, make that turn with it because that's all we can do. I mean, we are all handcuffed in the situation that people are making decisions in education that are not in education or not right. educators. And, and I feel like that was really important to me and the work that we were doing. The first thing that I told myself po, was if I'm going to make this work happen, I'm only going to use educators or students. Hmm. I, I'm not going to use somebody from a corporate world or somebody from professional development, development outside. Like, I'm going to use real teachers who are doing the real tool, who are doing the real work. So when I put them in front of people, they can go, okay, you're really doing this. So, so I want, I want you to think about if, if we've, we've done a great job of, of, of painting a canvas of what education, kind of like a timeline of what it used to look like and what it kind of looks like today. So what would be some things that you would think is a either person wanting to get into education or a person that's wanting to stay in education? What are some suggestions from your point of view that they need to take into consideration? What are some takeaways for those things to consider? So I think when we're talking about people getting into education, you've got to be able to research where you're planning to go in terms of districts and really look at what is their really guiding philosophy. And I mean, guiding philosophy of how they believe kids need to learn. Like what is their guiding philosophy and is relationship really part of that philosophy or is a scope and sequence or is all of these materials like what is, you know, what's the lighthouse effect in terms of that district? And I think if you can research districts and they're honest with you and you can find that connection, that's going to make young, young people, sorry, I sound old when I say that, make young people want to get in education. And then when you get into, uh, you said you're 51, I'm going to be 49 this year. And so when you get to our point of life where retirement is much closer than at the beginning of our career, you've got to make sure you connect with whether you're a leader, a teacher, uh, or a principal, that you connect with a system that values the same thing you do. I've had the opportunity to be a director now two times, uh, and I've even worked at the service center, and I found that I feel most fulfilled and my kids do the best when the system that, I in, that I'm in has the same values that I have. And, and I'm not talking moral and ethical values. I'm talking how we can best drive children. And um, I've been in situations where they didn't match and I was very unhappy. But then I've also found situations where it was almost made for me, kind of where I am right now, where the values match what I want. And I find myself excited to come to work every day. And I think that's the only way this field's going to grow or people like me are going to stay until we're 55 or 60 years old. I think that's well said. I think that's the... The hardest part is we, we see education changing, but we also see our educators changing. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, you know, obviously financially, you know, security, financial security, you know, I just, I remember going from 36,000 to 50 something thousand and thinking to myself, like, oh my gosh, like I didn't, you know, know that you can make this much money. You, know, you felt so, rich, didn't you? Yeah, I certainly did. No. I, uh, and that was just the financial part. I had, and it's funny you mentioned that word. I had felt rich already in education, making 36,000, teaching five classes of biology and cutting my own grass and lining my own field and driving my own bus. And, you know, like I, I felt rich. It wasn't the the money part. I literally felt education was giving me what I wanted was the opportunity to make a difference in children's lives. And that was on the field and in the classroom and in the community. Um, but it did, 
but I do believe that the, the, the connotation of education of, you know, I, I can't, I, in fact, I was in a hotel in Frisco last week and I met a, 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 a beautiful woman who worked at the front desk and her entire family is educators. <laughs> and she was um, in between determining whether she wanted to go back to education or not. And it really comes down to, like she said, she's like, you know, a majority of my family just understands you're not going to be financially rich. We'll use that word, but you're going to be like, your bucket's going to be filled. If this is where, like you mentioned that you, you get the values aligned with who you are and what you, what what you, what you want to do for a living. So for some people in education, you know, I think the connotation is don't get in it for the money, but get in it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like if we don't give them more of the right reasons, can't take care of the money part. That's not under our control. But right. if we can't reshape education for what the right reasons are, then we're going to continue to lose educators versus gaining educators. I agree. I agree. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I find that interesting. Um, I have um, a staff that I work with and I joke with them all the time about this is that they come to work because it's in some parts when life is stressful, they come to work and it's their happy place. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's ironic that they're coming to work in a stressful situation and it's their happy place at time. You know what I mean? At certain times of their life. And I think, I think, man, I'm, I'm either really lucky or I haven't told them the truth about their jobs totally. Because, <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, if, if, if teachers aren't, coming to work and they're happy about it. I think that's why we lose them. Uh, I've got, you know, we, we, uh, we have tons of rules in all parts of education, not just special ed. And at the end of the year, things ramp up and stress stresses people out more. But when they tell me that they come to work and this makes them happy, I'm like, I'll never lose people like that. Where when I come, when I have employees or folks that I work with and they're like, well, I've got to go to work again today. We're going to do this. I'm like, well, you're just halfway out the door because you're not in a happy place. And I know whether that's the, the, the district you're in, the content you're teaching. And I find that the reason why we're losing people in, in schools really isn't about the money. Because I've had, I our district doesn't pay the highest. And I've had people come back and say, I shouldn't have left for the $5,000 or $6,000 difference. Mm-hmm. Because you guys gave us a feeling of, I'm going to call it, this is going to sound hokey. We kind of belong together in a community. <laughs> It's no, it's hokey, and it's no, it's no, no, it's not pokey. It sounds hokey. No, 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 no. And I'm sorry, I didn't. I apologize. I'm horrible. No, no, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm horrible at this. I'm supposed to be a better interviewer. No, no. I'm having a good conversation. No, no. The reason I'm saying that is it's not hokey. So the whole time you're talking, in the back of my mind, I all I wanted to do, and I'm and I shouldn't have done this. I apologize. I'm better at this. Sometimes I'm a better listener than I am. I promise. And um, is it's belonging. No. So when you said it, that's why I just I, I had to, I, I was audible because of it, because one of the things that's so hard to teach when we come into a campus and they're like, all right, we want to put relationships at the center of learning. We want to do restorative practices. We want to do relational practice, whatever you want to frame it as. Right. And I'm like, OK, you realize it starts at this top. Right. Campus culture, campus connections start first. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, let me explain this to you. Maslow's belonging, right? It's the third yes. tier of food, water, shelter, safety, belonging. I said, yes. let's skip over to this, the fourth one, the fourth one, self-esteem, self-esteem needs to achieve, recognize, and respect. You're not going to get your students to achieve, master, recognize, and respect, nor your staff to achieve, recognize, and respect to each other unless they feel like they belong. 
So unless you create a culture in your building and your teachers create a culture in their classroom where the students feel like they belong and they want to be there, because I have told adults, think about this from your kid's perspective. If you kick them out of class or if you're constantly on their butts or whatever, right? And you're like, well, you know, get out of my class and you can come back in here when you respect me. I'm like, let me introduce you to Maslow's, which over a <laughs> hundred years has identified that that is never going to happen because in order, you know, we're assuming food, water, shelter, and safety is, 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 is being met. This student, if you don't allow this student to feel like they belong and belonging is subjective. So mm -hmm. therefore, if they don't feel like they belong and you can't tell them how they should feel because you kicked them out or you kept on their butts or you kept you know, just nitpicking at them, then you're not going to get them to achieve master recognize nor respect you in what we're, but we're thought we invert it. Does that make sense? Pogue? We're like, that, yes, you leave. And when you, when you can act that way, we'll let you belong. And I'm like, that's why gangs were so prevalent in the eighties and nineties, because they gave a sense of belonging to some lost kids. Right? right. So when you were describing, I would give up five grand in a heartbeat to feel like I belonged. And to me, that shows you the strength behind belonging versus the number of financial reward for it. And that is exactly why I want to come work in white settlement, because what you guys are are bringing in is exactly what school districts need to focus on. And there is no way I'm going to I'm going to assume there's no way that white settlement accidentally got there, because I always say this. You can't wing relationships. There's got to be something that white settlement is doing that is intentionally creating a culture of belonging. Yes. Does that make sense? And if there are, what are some things that you can put, put pinpoints on or some identifying factors that white settlement is doing different? So let me, so just to, I'm going to put it in a small bit of perspective. So the COVID doesn't really help, to be honest. It's hard to do large gatherings and stuff. But at the beginning of each year and at the end of each year and many times through the year, we have district-wide gatherings where we get an update on different things. And before those meetings start, we have the drum corps come out and play music. We have some dancing going on. And then the superintendent comes out and says, it's a good day to be a bear. And that's how he starts his messages. It's a good day to be a bear. He says, thank you for being here. He always thanks us for being here when the reality is we work for him, right? I mean, he is just, every day he's, he's very consistent with his message. He thanks us for being coming to work every day. He thanks us for taking care of his kids because his, our school board believes that the kids are the most important thing. And it's his job to make sure that he, we re, he recognizes that we have a pretty, to be honest, a pretty tough job. And he, all he says is thank you. And sometimes it's as simple as that sounds. Those are the best things a teacher can hear when, when your boss just says, thank you. Glad to see you today. And thank you. And we joke, he and I joke all the time because I'm in some classes and he mentors me. Whenever there's a meeting, he always makes sure there's snacks and food. Whenever there's a meeting, he always makes sure there's some kind of, I'm going to call it a parade, but it's really not. It's just, he's highlighting kids doing great things. And he says, because of you guys are doing these great things and this is what the kids can do. And so that, that's what we do. And um, every year before Christmas around Thanksgiving, we have a giant get together. They give out prizes. They give out. I don't know how they budget it. They give out different kinds of monies and stuff, but it's all about Mr. Molinar saying the two best words in the world. He just says, thank you. And to me, there's no better way of saying thank you than just you talk about belonging, just high-fiving people and letting them know that their job is appreciated. And he is a 
he doesn't even try. It just oozes. And as someone who tries to grow, I tell him all the time, it makes me crazy that you just have this innate thing about you that just says, I'm glad you're here. And I feel the same way about people, but I just don't, I, it's not that I have to work at it. He's just a million times better at it than I am. If that makes, you know what I mean? And it doesn't, he, has he doesn't it. even, he doesn't even try. It's just who he is. If that makes sense. He has it. Yes. Yeah. And we, yes, he does. I have people on my team that have it. And, and some people say I have it. And what's interesting is you can't really put a finger on it. That's why we call it it. it yes. he, he, he has something and it's hard to describe. But he has it and he has that innate ability to make people feel comfortable, to make them feel welcome, to make them feel appreciative. But what's interesting is one of our tools that we talk about at the campus culture and even in the classroom is Sparks, 90 Second Spark. Mm -hmm. So what you just described, high fives, having family meals together, celebrations together, right? Like what what's interesting is notice, and I'm going to use this as a teaching for others, people listening. Notice that you describe this happens, does, this doesn't happen once a year. Am I correct? Am I hearing correct. this correct, Pope? Correct. So here's what I'm saying. It happens multiple times throughout the year. And when it is, it's always about celebrations. It's always positive. It's always high fives. It's always about the kids. It's, uh, and so what's interesting about him, and there's food. So we always break bread. We share things over this. And so there's a formula of success because to me, without intentionality, there's no sustainability. And so those scheduled and even sometimes impromptu opportunities that you guys can get together and create this, whether it's choir practice, whether it's formally the thing that we do, you know, before Thanksgiving and give out gifts and appreciation, mm -hmm. but those structured, organized interactions, that's what I'm going to call them, structured, organized interactions, positive interactions are what creates the climate and culture of people wanting to stay in white settlement and work there because not every other school district does those things. And if they do, they're guilty of doing it. Oh yeah, we need to do something around teacher appreciation. Oh, it's May, right? Oh, oh yeah, you know, and, and you only feel appreciated once a year or or you know, or right at Christmas or in in right. It's not systemic enough. And to be honest, it's not genuine enough. And I think that's what your superintendent does. It's genuine enough or it's more than genuine that the fact that when these things occur, that it's real, it's not yeah. a show. It's not something we're just putting on just so that genuine and realness and authenticity that he exposes himself to, and he's vulnerable as a, in that position trickle down. And so my thoughts are, and hope that it lead that your leaders, your campus leaders in the people in positions of, of, of influence like yourself are, are reaping the benefits of that and allowing that to filtrate through them all the way to their staff and that the, the campus leaders are doing these types of things, not just at the district level, but the campus level. And they're doing these types of sparks because when you create that culture, who doesn't want to be there? I agree. And, you know, we, we talk about personality traits and we do a big thing years ago about our top, top five personality traits. And one of my, my number one is competitiveness. And so when I see these great things that everyone's doing, I'm like, well, we're going to show everyone else who can be, who, you know what I mean? And But the thing is, is that doesn't affect me. I'm just trying to, just trying to say, look, we can all, you know, we can all celebrate, but who can celebrate bigger and show people appreciation. Yeah. And my, my boss is competitive too. And so when we all have ideas, we're all trying to, we're trying to in a positive way outdo each other. And you use the word real. 
And that's the only way to describe it is it is as almost raw. It's so real because um, my first year when I got hired before the end of the school was over, I was invited to the end of the year celebration. And and uh, I was like, I'm, I'm very interested in what's going on. And I remember going home and telling my wife, I'm like, I'm in a different kind of place here. Um, she goes, what do you mean? I said, it was like a giant one hour party. I know we talked about legitimate things and I know we had a processional of, of required elements we had to do. I said, but it was an hour long party and I'm exhausted. It was fun and I was exhausted. And, and you're right, it's real. And I do feel like I belong. Um, it, it's, uh, I told you my closet's nothing but blue and purple, but I wouldn't care to have those colored of shirts if I didn't belong to the district, if it wasn't just a job. I feel like this is a, I don't know, it's, it's, I'm going back to Hokey. It's just a good place. And it, it goes back to the reason why I'm talking to you today. He's, he puts time and we put time into relationships with, with, with other people. And the ones who do it the best, you can tell because their kids typically grow the most. Absolutely. It's so funny because, yes, I remember, I don't remember all five of mine, but one of mine was competitive, right? And so when I was a high school, you play, you're a coach and you played college at least for a year. So you've got to. So so the reason I say that is quick, quick, quick story, because I don't, I want to value your time, but it's just so funny. Pogue is, I was a middle school principal the first time I became principal and I was like, look, are we having pep rallies? And this was a small school. So it was Carn City out, out south. Southeast of San Antonio. So I would drive 75 miles to get to work every day, one way. And so 2A school at the time, back in the old classifications, so about 225 kids. And so I'm like, do we do pep rallies? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, all right, I want to be like totally involved. I need to be the center of the pep rally. Not that it needs to be about me, but kids need to see me be like outside the box. So, and it was interesting. So our pep rallies became like in this short amount of time, right? First year, legendary to a certain extent, like, Oh my God, these pep rallies are like, and I'm trying to outdo I'm the next pep rally has got to be bigger than the last one. So our high school and the middle school were like right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it happened, but the high school was going to let us host our junior high pep rally at the high school gym and the high school was going to come see it. Oh, it's on Pogue. Like we're, (laughs) I had sumo wrestling suits and two coaches wrestling the sumo wrestling suits. I had a, I did a basketball jersey with a bandana upside down and wrapped. And I wrote this rap that was specific for the school. I had one of the high school coaches playing drums and he was doing my beat. We did Thriller. It was October. We, I did half my staff and we organized our own Thriller dance. Like we went all out, right? It was so phenomenal, right? So phenomenal. Everybody loved it. Then I was, then I heard was, we're not doing that again. Do not. We are. The high school was so upset that I was out doing their pep rallies <laughs> that all of a sudden it became a negative thing. Right. They were like, sure. they're not welcome back. They can't come back and do any more pep rallies. Y'all need to like calm it down. You know, <laughs> it's like, sorry, but I, it, it was this one. So when you start talking about outdoing, it was just like, oh, yeah. yeah, each one was like, we got to outdo the high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then then their next pep rally, they did a dance. They did an organized dance. They did everything. And I was like, nice job. Nice job. Yes. You know, <laughs> no, but it's just so funny when you said that that was my, my first thought when is like, ah, we got to outdo each other. Heck yeah. Well, brother. Hey, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. We are wrapping up on our hour. And so I want to honor your time and our listeners time. But, you know, Pogue, one of and I'm going to let you have a closing statement. But one of the things that I'm taking away from is just our conversation about belonging, our conversation about 
the connect before content and making it just so simple that it that the message really can't be understood that that the system of education as as successful as it has been ha- at times has set us on a path to where we're re- having to re-navigate ourselves into understanding the value of relationships in that as much as we want students to be successful in social emotional learning and all the other things if we don't put that connection first it doesn't matter whether it's content social emotional learning or anything else we're going to continue to struggle and having that leadership at the top that is genuine and authentic and so real and systemic across the district i can see why people want to work in white settlement so i'm going to give you some closing thoughts for our listeners from today okay so um i'll tell you i was quite honest with Kurtz. i was really nervous about doing this uh my daughter goes, you're going to be in a podcast? Like, you're old. What are you, what is wrong with you? And then what I told her was about, she goes, oh, you'll have a good time. And and as we've been talking and as I, in my mind, kind of prep what I thought this was going to be, and no, I didn't have any idea what we were going to really talk about, um, is is I, I find myself having to, 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 in my mind, we've reinforced what I feel like makes our system good. And I think sometimes we forget about the things that make our system good. And that what makes our system good is the, you talk about belonging. It's how we treat the people that we work with. Um, I know I have a director title and I know Mr. Molinar has superintendents and all the people have boss titles, but my friends, my administrative friends who run good departments and good programs, they're the ones that actually work for their, their people. And I think once you realize that the relationship is about me working for you, and then if the kids can see that and that the kids can recognize that the teacher works for them, that I think those are the best parts of education. I'm a, I've always believed that relationships are probably the only thing that matters. Uh, a long time ago, I learned that if a kid loves you as a teacher, they will pretty much do anything for you. And so I've tried to build myself to set systems up, whether it's working here, working anywhere else, that I want to I want to have a system where people feel really loved and that their needs are met and that they have everything they can have so that they can be the best they can be. I, there's, uh, I was, I'm, I'm now to the point in my career where I want to help build the next leader. For too many years, I tried so hard and grinded to become a director. And now that I've been a director for six or seven years, I'm looking around like, well, what do I do now? And I've kind of found my next passion of trying to find that next that next leader who has the same qualities that Mr. Molinar has that I keep trying to develop. And it all boils down to who's the one that can, can gather the troops and love them and be great with them. And and I really find that that's what makes me happy as an educator. And that's the parts of being in a school system the last 25, 26 years that makes me proud to be an educator. Wow. What a great message. What a great conversation. Tell your daughter you were not too old. You are, you, you are full of wisdom and full of knowledge for our listeners today. Michael Pogue, I, I appreciate not just your time, your, your point of view. Um, it is refreshing to still hear someone in education that values everything that you just said, because there are so many key words about love and needs and belonging and just the things that you create a culture. So it is no wonder that you have made it to your spot as a director. And it sounds like you have found a home as a bear in White Settlement. And so for me, as we close off, I just wish you the best. I thank you for just being the person that you are. I thank you for sharing yourself today. 
a little bit of yourself personally, but yet professionally. I thank you for sharing your wisdom, the perspective, and I just thank you for just simply being you. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you, Pogue. Thanks for having me, sir. Thanks, Ms. Curtis. Have a great Absol one. Absolutely. So for our listeners, thanks for tuning in, and we will connect with you next time.